Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Encanto, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. disclaimer this is not an official disney podcast but all of these films are available to stream now on disney plus so come on watch along with us and let's learn together i'm film journalist ben travis and while my january diet has me slicing down a single kidney bean into three separate pieces i'm not your disneyversity lecturer no this week i'm a lost fox cub trying to make my way through the ominous thickets of disney's dark age as we watch through 60 films and counting Thankfully, I am not alone. I am joined, as ever, by the happiest hound dog in all of animation academia, here to sniff out the facts, the fascinating trivia, and the fun weird stuff. I am, of course, talking about Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, happy new year, happy new pod. How are you doing? I'm great. That was a good introduction, by the way. I'm happy with that. I like being a sniffer. I like the idea of sniffing stuff out. I'm a bit of a sniffer. <laughs> You're a sniffer in what context? In a purely academic context? No, I'm, I'm good at sniffing things. Are you a very scent-based yeah. person? That's how I explore the world, is through scent. It, it was until the bloody coronavirus yeah. took it away, took my powers away, like Samson, so now I'm kind of operating at a, at a mid-level, but um, generally I'm, I'm quite a good sniffer, yeah. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> We're learning things about each other. We're learning things about People Disney movies. People always say that about me. <laughs> but yeah, we are in the bleak midwinter right now, about to talk about one of the bleakest Disney films. How was your Christmas? What Disney movies did you watch over Christmas? I watched The Fox and the Hound. <laughs> <laughs> Same. That was a fun, fun time for the whole family. Literally, I sat down with my mum and dad to watch this one. We were all really bummed out by the end. I watched The Fox and the Hound too. Oh, see, I can't wait to hear what happens in the sequel because you watched The Fox and the Hound too, and then said to me, do not read a single thing about this film. Do you want watch this film because I want to tell you all about it on the podcast. So I am excited for whatever that ends up being. It's a pretty special one. But um, yeah, also over Christmas, I had a great time, as I assume many people did, watching Encanto when I was staying at my parents. I was woken up by my mum saying, Sam, today I just want to sit down with you on the settee and watch a Disney movie. Aww. So I was like, okay, we'll probably, we'll probably not do The Fox and the Hound. She was like, oh, what's the next <laughs> one on your podcast? We'll do that. I was like, it's Fox and the Hound. No, no we'll do Encanto. We'll do the happy new good one. Um, but you you put your family through this. I did, yeah. My, again, my mum and dad were like, well, what's the next one for the podcast? We'll watch that. So we did watch Fox and the Hound over Christmas. But again, we watched Encanto, me and my mum and dad and Lizzie, my other half, all watched that together. And I was really excited to watch it again. I loved Encanto first time around, but second time around, it was even better. The songs really, really hit. I think the storytelling in it is beautiful. So that was a joy. Uh, and on Christmas Day, after being stuffed full of turkey and 
roast potatoes and all the good stuff. All the good stuff that you don't like, Sam. <laughs> Me and my mum and dad sat down and watched Mary Poppins Returns, which I hadn't seen Aww. since the cinema. And again, it's just a lovely, lovely thing. So I had a great time with that. And we did the Muppet Christmas Carol on Christmas Eve because, you know, that has to be done. That is non-negotiable. So, yeah, we've both had, I guess, a Disney-heavy Christmas. But in terms of the start of your new year, you've been doing some more exceptional DreamWorks goodness. Tell me about... Okay, last year you held your own Shrek Symposium. But I believe the other week you presented a paper in a Boss Baby Symposium. What is going on? Yeah, I was I was soundly defeated in, in, in the game of who can put on the most absurd academic symposium by a group of scholars in America who held the first annual Boss Baby Symposium <laughs> on January 3rd, which, by the way, had a great time. Big respect to those guys. January the 3rd? Wow. Who does that? I, I spent my New Year's Day <laughs> writing about the, the Boss Baby. <laughs> Maybe I could have done it earlier, but I didn't because it was Christmas. So it was kind of a very, this is not painting me in a great light. I don't usually leave things to the last minute. It was the holiday season. I didn't want to think about the boss baby. It was my 2021 New Year's resolution to never think about the boss baby. So I was actually barred from (laughs) writing that paper until January 1st, 2022. And that's where we ended up. Yeah. Fun times. The world of animation academia is an exciting, ever-evolving place. And what was your paper in that, or your discussion on? My paper was entitled, Cookies Are for Clauses, The Boss Baby and the Textuality in Late Period Dreamworks. Amazing. So that, that that's a reference, the, the line, Cookies Are for Clauses, is a reference to... Bosses and... Ba- Glengarry Glen Ross. It's... <laughs> <laughs> Bosses, Bosses and what? babies, and Alec Baldwin and Glengarry Glen Alec Ross. Alec Baldwin and Glengarry Glen yeah. Ross. <laughs> we got there in the end. There you go. So, so you would have done well to attend that. So I can basically my whole paper was just a slide that said the line "cookies offer of clauses" is from Glengarry Glen Ross. Thank you, thank you, thank you. There's my research. Well, now I feel like I didn't miss out because we've got the four one one. You've given us the lowdown. Uh, so okay, let's talk briefly. Fox and the Hound was was this one you watched? growing up was this a big one for you (laughs) it was one i watched exactly one time when i was myself just a little boss baby um (laughs) and i can't remember anything about it except hating it and crying at it and the vhs remained in the home the same thing happened with fox and the hound and snow white i watched them once i cried at them and i couldn't really look at the vhs in the vhs cupboard because it was so triggering for me horrendous stuff Yeah, I never watched this one growing up. We didn't have the VHS. All I'd heard was this reputation about it being the sort of most heartbreaking Disney film of all time. Uh, Maybe partly through you, but also because of Lizzie, my other half, who had her own childhood trauma with this film. And I thought instead of me telling you about Lizzie's backstory with The Fox and the Hound, we'll get her to tell it herself. So everybody, welcome to the podcast, Lizzie Hampson. Hi, hello. This is Hello, weird. Lizzie. Hi. Hi, Sam. So, yeah, you had a childhood experience with the fox and the hound that did not end well. Tear us up. Like, what happened? So, actually, I spoke to my mum before to get clarification <laughs> on some parts of this story because I have largely uh, repressed it. But, basically, I was off sick from school. It was probably, like, 1997 or... I think I was, like, six 
or seven maybe so I was off sick from primary school and my mum said I'd watched all my Disney VHSs like multiple times by that point so she called my nan and my nan came around to look after me while she went to Woolworths again saying there's in a place and time in the late 90s (laughs) and so they must have been looking for another Disney film for you to watch and I think we should make this clear before we go in if there are two things you loved especially as a kid and also now obviously dogs big dog lover Hmm. but you were a massive childhood fan of foxes yeah you you would force your dad to give you money that was to save the foxes i'm doing air quotes there you created your own charity within your own home to save the foxes yeah so they must have seen this disney film called the fox and the hound and thought There is literally no better Disney film for Lizzie to watch. Yeah, well, obviously, you know, yeah, I was obsessed with foxes, like, to an unusual extent. It's the big two. (laughs) Yeah. Foxes and hounds. Exactly. So clearly, my mum went into Woolies and was like, perfect, you know, that'll give me an hour of peace. You know, she'll be, you know, really excited by this film. So she brought it home for me, put it on, Nan left job done so me mom <laughs> she put it on for me and then so I the thing I couldn't remember was whether I got like the whole way through the film or not but turns out I didn't because my mom said within about 10 minutes I was crying and screaming <laughs> and saying to her mom mom please come and turn it off I don't like it apparently I also said it was mean which I don't know because I can't remember it at all and I'm never going to watch it again but I think it probably is a bit mean and said to her please will you take this back to the woman in the shop so like i couldn't even bear to have it in the house so you lasted about 10 minutes it was too mean which we're gonna get into the the film itself but that i'd say is an accurate description it's very dark very ominous right from the beginning and it it wasn't just that you needed it off, you needed it out the house, you needed it gone, yeah. you needed the memory of it banished. Yeah, exactly. So um, the reason I called my mum was because I wasn't sure whether she did actually take it back to the shop or whether she like just threw it away or put it in a cupboard somewhere. But turns out she did take it back. <laughs> she took it back to the lady in the yeah, shop. Yeah, in Woolies. So she must have called me Nan back over <laughs> 10 minutes later. <laughs> to sit with me again and she said she took it oh no sorry first she said she rewound it a little bit and watched it herself and thought yeah like fair enough this is this is is horrible this is too mean so she put it back in the box took it back to Woolworths and managed to return it and got her money back and she just told the woman behind the counter that I didn't like it. And that was like, I guess it was the 90s. So it was an acceptable excuse. They were probably like, this is the 10th Fox yeah. and the Hound VHS we've had returned this week because the kids don't like it. Yeah, exactly. And so she said she got her money back and bought me another like Aladdin spin-off video instead. Oh, and yeah. I was happy Return with of that. Jafar. Probably. Aladdin and the King of Thieves. Yeah. One of those bad boys. Yeah, it could have been. Mm. But... So that's really interesting to me because when I heard, oh, Lizzie hated Fox and the Hound, Lizzie was traumatised by Fox and the Hound, as was I, but I can't really remember why either. Yeah. And I always assumed it was because of the horrible things that happen in the second half of the movie. (laughs) 
<laughs> which you didn't even get to. It gets so much worse than those opening 10 minutes. That's that's nothing. Yeah, see, so obviously I can't remember really what about it particularly upset me because like I said, I think I've repressed it because it's a trauma memory. But also like it was important that Ben set the context of quite how much I loved foxes. Do you know what I mean? Like it was ne- this was next level for me. And I think around six or seven was the real peak of my home charity to save the foxes so i think even just the thought that a fox might be in distress at any point just really hit me hard it'd be hypocritical for you to even own this anti-fox movie while still chairing the save the foxes charity if that came out it'd be all over the papers you'd have to be removed yeah well exactly yeah so you know i was very uh forward thinking I guess in that sense also I was a very sensitive child like very very sensitive so it all kind of makes sense but I'm glad my mum got her money back anyway oh and she also said because I was a very sensitive and in some way slightly odd child you know the the fox charity thing was just the tip of the iceberg really she kind of wanted to corroborate whether it was just me who had found this really disturbing or whether it was other children as well so she said when she took me back to school the next day she spoke to another kid's mum at the school gate and confirmed that he also was very distressed by the fox and the hound (laughs) so i think that must have gave us some peace of mind but yeah there we are it's my trauma one of them anyway so there we go an entire generation of children scarred by the fox and the hound you did not re-watch this when i watched it for the podcast you've watched some of them with me you've all bobbed in and out this was one you were like, no, watch it without me. I won't even have it in the house. I watched it at my mum and dad's house, not because you wouldn't allow it in the house, but I feel like it was probably the safest place. I don't think I would have allowed it in the house, to be honest. Um, <laughs> also, when we were at your mum and dad, you kept talking about it. Like, all they were talking about was the fox and the hound, to the point where I had to say to them, do you mind? Like, stop. <laughs> It's a a sensitive subject. (laughs) Anyway. Well, well, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, nice to see you. All right, Sam. Nice to see you. Yeah, Yeah, see you again soon. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Anyway, that is enough from us. Thank you, Lizzie, for joining us. Uh, But Sam, we're all sat down. The register's complete. And it's time for class to begin. So this time, after swooping into action with the Rescue Aid Society, we're going to be stockpiling tissues and ready to see friends become enemies in 1981's The Fox and the Hound. How dare you, Disney! Okay, now that Lizzie is out of the room and we can talk about the plot developments at play here, for anyone who hasn't seen The Fox and the Hound, for people who haven't put themselves through it with this one, Sam, what is the plot? What is the story of this film? So Todd is a fox adopted by the kindly widow Tweed, and Copper is a hound raised by the cantankerous hunter Amos Slade. As children, they become the best of friends despite their differences, but when Copper returns from a long trip as a trained hunting dog, Slade pits them against each other. Following a climactic chase in which Todd saves Copper from a bear, the hound protects the fox from his owner, and they go their separate ways. Oh man, what an absolute downer. So, there's a lot to get into before we even start talking about the film. And we've been in Woolly Ritherman land for a little while now on the podcast. We've had several woolly joints in a row, sometimes co-directed with other people. Uh, But this one was produced by Woolly Ritherman, but we had three directors' names at the start. Art Stevens, Ted Berman, and Richard Rich. Who are these guys, Sam? How did this kind of change happen? 
So, Wooly Reitherman was around, he produced this movie. He will have been involved in acquiring the rights to this book because that took place in 1967. It was one of the first major acquisitions after Walt's death, the novel by Daniel P. Mannix. And he put the movie into production in 1977, inspired by his son's pet fox. There's <laughs> conflicting what? reports. Yeah, I don't know, right? There's conflicting reports as to whether this was a pet fox from, like, the past, or this was an existent pet fox. There's some stories about Ryderman bringing this fox into the studio for people to draw. There may have been multiple pet foxes, like a generational <laughs> thing, but there was at least one fox in the Ryderman household. But this was his last film. He wasn't directing it, he was the producer, but it was it was the last Disney feature film that he worked on at all. It was, as you've said, directed by Ted Berman and Art Stevens, both of whom had been doing bits and bobs at the studio for a while. Art directed The Rescuers. These were really part of this like middle generation of animators. So in between the nine old men and like the new school represented by Don Bluth, you had people like Berman and Stevens, and Richard Rich, who was a younger animator who would break away from Disney in the 1990s, and he went on to direct movies like The Swan Princess. Have you ever seen The Swan Princess? No, is that in that kind of era of non-Disney, Disney-looking movies? Yeah, exactly. A very Disney Renaissance-style musical led to nine sequels, most of which were directed by Rich, including Escape from Castle Mountain, Princess Tomorrow, Pirate Today. <laughs> it's good to have a plan. <laughs> and The Royal Mystery, which is spelt with a Z. So that, that's wow. Richard Rich. Yeah, so th this is a kind of transitional period, as was The Rescuers, but now Ryderman has moved away from the director's chair completely, although he was still involved in elements of the production of the movie, and as we'll see, conflicted with some of these younger directors on certain points. It's also the last movie on which any of the Nine Old Men would animate. Frank Thompson and Ollie Johnston were the last Nine Old Men standing, and they are in the credits for this. They did some early animation, but they didn't stay with the film till its completion. So if the narrative of the Dark Age so far has been the Nine Old Men kind of winding down, from now on it becomes this new generation winding up. So you mentioned Wooly Reitherman. This is his last film so did he retire after this or did he stick around with disney or did he go elsewhere he retired after this and the story of his retirement uh is coming up in discarded right so so on the seeds for that because it is it's it's quite good but it's not just berman and stevens and rich we've got a lot of other younger animators who got their start on this movie in fact this is the first movie or one of the first movies for john lasseter brad bird tim burton henry selick ron clements and john musker glenn Keane, chris book mike gabriel and mark dindle who are all yeah very important either in the disney story or in the animation story or in the case of people like tim burton in cinema generally in the last few decades so a lot of people got the start on this and, and most of them left <laughs> during the movie or just generally had a bad time uh, tim burton just could not bring himself to draw cutesy foxes as he's he, whenever he talks about this he said oh my, my, my foxes just look like roadkill which sounds <laughs> i can imagine that which sounds very characteristically tim burton and while it's the first movie for a lot of these animators it was the last movie for the brightest star of disney's new generation don bluth as well as his cohorts this was the movie during which Don Bluth led an exodus of many animators, leaving the studio behind to start his own enterprise. 
why did he do that? Because he he's not been at the studio that long by the sounds of things. He's, his name's popped up around a couple of other recent films. But yeah, at what point does he go from being a sort of valued part of the team, but not one of the biggest Disney names, to just being like, I'm going to do this myself and take a bunch of guys with me? How does that happen? Yeah, well, I mean, on The Rescuers, he was a directing animator. So that was the first movie in which he was given quite a lot of power. And as I said on that episode, you can see threads from The Rescuers, which continue into his own movies. So I guess in that way, he's just kind of feeling himself. But specifically, he was not happy with the direction of Disney animation. He talked about some of the corners cut on The Rescuers and he wanted to produce more lavish films that were more in keeping with Disney's reputation. So, he made another animated film in his garage while working on The Fox and the Hound at night. No way. He took a bunch of guys, um, Gary Goldman and John Pomeroy were two of his closest allies, and he made a half-hour movie in his garage called Banjo the Woodpile Cat on nights <laughs> and weekends. I mean, good for you, man. Everyone's got to have a hobby that's the same as their day job. I-, I can't believe I just said that when I do podcasts <laughs> at work and then in my spare time here we are doing podcasts. Okay, let me shut up. <laughs> Yeah, this is your Banjo the Woodpile Cat. <laughs> this is cat. my Banjo the Woodpile Cat. How do you feel about that? Well, um, not to imply that you're going to lead next to this. <laughs> no, exactly. Of course. <laughs> so he felt Banjo the Woodpile Cat was being produced with these meticulous classical techniques that Disney had long abandoned. And it's said that he wanted to emulate Walt so much during this period that he grew a little moustache. Oh, that's a bit sad. <laughs> So he felt confident in this side project and he walked into the studio president's office on his birthday, on Don Bluth's birthday. He walked into the boss's office and said, I am going. <laughs> I'm not doing this anymore. Take your fox and your hound and shove them where the sun don't shine. And he took 17 other animators with him, delaying the film by six months. Ooh, that, that is crazy. I mean, standing up to Disney like that, your own employer and... I mean, was he that aggrieved at how Disney was operating? Apparently so. And I mean, he wasn't just standing up to Disney, the company here either. He was standing up very specifically to the Disney legacy because that president whose office he walked into was Ron Miller, who is the new, at this point, president of Walt Disney Productions. He got the job in 1980 and he would take over as CEO from our friend Card Walker shortly after Fox and the Hound came out in 1983. Now, Ron Miller is the husband of Walt Disney's daughter, Diane. He's Walt Disney's son-in-law. And he'd been groomed as Walt's successor when Walt was alive. He, he kind of took him on. He used to be a professional footballer. He married Disney's daughter and he's like, you're not doing that anymore. No grandchildren of mine are going to be raised by someone whose body and mind have been ravaged by professional football, effectively. Right. Um, and he said, you're instead going to take over the Walt Disney Company. And in 1980, that effectively happened. This was the first time a Disney family member had been in charge of the company since Walt's brother Roy died in 1971. So this was the guy who Don Bluth was sticking it to. So there's this real, almost like an Oedipal thing going on here with Don Bluth. He wants to kill the father. He wants to kill this company that... And this is coming up, he's coming off quite badly here, but I think it's quite, <laughs> it's quite a cool thing to do, to be honest. He wants to kill this company that's kind of raised him both with their films and, and trained him to be an animator and stuff like that and go on and do better and 
he did kind of do better in, in many ways for a while. His first film, Secret of Nim, is absolutely excellent, although it wasn't a big commercial smash. His next two films, An American Tale and The Land Before Time, were huge successes, very much beat Disney at their own game, and according to some sources, really kicked into gear the Disney renaissance by giving them something to compete against. Wow, so there's such a tumultuous time for the studio. And Anything else happening? Any other big sea changes among all of that stuff? Well, one kind of sea change that is worth mentioning is that this was also the first Disney film to substantially feature the work of female animators. People like Linda Miller, Diane Landau, Rebecca Rees, Heidi Goodell and Lorna Cook almost all of whom left with Don Bluth. <laughs> so immediately we're just like, see you, see you, Mickey Mouse, we're off to the land before time. Yeah, so make of that what you will, I suppose. Wow. Okay, so that's all the stuff kind of happening at the studio. But then in terms of the film that that created, I'm sure some of that kind of dark time at the studio fed into the film, but why is this film so dark narrative-wise? Was it a conscious decision from the studio to just make something this bleak and intense they must have known what they were making well this is kind of a, a compromise the film in its finished form because you actually had the very youngest generation of animators people like ron clements and john musker were actively pushing to make it darker in some ways which we'll get to and woolly riverman was pushing to make it lighter and fluffier in other ways which we'll also get to the directors were kind of in the middle trying to keep the young animators under control and also trying to avoid getting dragged into some of Wooly Ritherman's less good ideas. Again, I'm just building this all up for, <laughs> for discard and it's too much build up for what it is, but it's, yeah. So the movie that we end up with, this quite dark movie, is actually a compromise. It could have been a lot worse. I'm picturing for Discarded the airport fight in Captain America Civil War, but with like Disney animators. That is what I'm seeing coming up. And then, you know, when we talk about the, the novel as well, that's why it's so dark, because the novel is way worse. It's, it's <laughs> indescribably worse. Amazing. We'll bring it on when we get to uh, that part of the show. But, okay, should we get into it then? Should we reopen all of these old wounds? Should we uh, submit our listeners to the trauma of the fox and the hound? I suppose we'd better. Strap in, everyone. It's going to be a wild ride. Mr. Toad's wild ride. So having heard the reputation of this film, I went into it fully prepared to feel a lot of emotions, to be fully in the dark age, but even then I was taken aback by how stark the opening of The Fox and the Hound is. I think a film we're going to talk about a lot in reference to The Fox and the Hound is Bambi, and the opening five minutes of The Fox and the Hound plays like a speedy run-through of Bambi. You know how at the start of Evil Dead 2 it's basically just Evil Dead for 20 minutes and then they do the sequel stuff? This was like that for Bambi, where within five minutes you're like, hey, here's a tiny fox cub, oh my god, mum's been shot. And before that you get this sort of long, ominous, swirly kind of opening shot, wind howling, going through the forest, going through that natural environment really bleak, really stark, just forest sounds, and then the drums come in. Boom. 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 And then you hear the barking dogs in the background. It is such a chilly start to this film. 
This must have been what Lizzie was talking about, right? Yeah. When she said the first ten minutes felt mean, because it's not the. It can't be the first ten minutes because after this it gets really fluffy for quite a, a while, right? It, it has to have just been the first two minutes that that was so mean because it is. It's it's brutal. It's so quiet. The barking dogs are terrifying already. Kind of pitching fox against hound, setting up that relationship, and also tapping into some of Lizzie's darkest fears. Clearly, <laughs> and yeah, it is. It's like Bambi sped up. It's like, oh, you remember what was like the emotional climax of Bambi, the thing that traumatized everybody about that movie that happened halfway through. This is how we're starting. Like square one for us is matricide, and. It's only downhill from there. I will say there is some beautiful stuff in this because I think we've been through a period of Disney films where the quality of the animation or the animation style has really kind of gone up and down. This felt like it was leaning back towards classic Disney style, the way they evoke that forest. There's a really, really beautiful shot of a sparkly spider's web covered in dew that's kind of coming in and out of focus and really like lovely natural imagery. But I think you're just so like caught up in the tension of it all that you're not really focusing on that stuff. Like I was trying to take in the forest and the atmosphere of it all while at the same time being like, oh, Kurt Russell is copper? Wait, who is Squeaks the Caterpillar? Can't wait to meet this guy. Um, it's a real kind of wild opening to the film, I think. I agree with that. And, and the animation is... A step up from what we've seen. It's a step up from the rescuers opening credits, for example, which were attractive but were composed of these fairly static images. Here we do have this sort of Bambi-esque journey through the forest, but I also think that by very clearly setting up that comparison with Bambi, it kind of sets itself up for a fall because it's not as good as Bambi. It feels weird to be like comparing these movies just based on like their opening credits and these first shots, but the opening of Bambi is such a showcase for the multiplane camera, and it's so dynamic in that way with the different layers, whereas this whole movie really feels more minimal in that regard and feels a little bit more shallow, kind of flat and, and stagey almost, which isn't a major criticism because it's more luscious than a lot of the more Xeroxy films that we've been looking at recently, but compared to Bambi... Uh, it's not the same, is it? You come at the king, you best not miss. And sadly, they do not miss with Todd's mum. Because <laughs> that, I mean, I think there's a real sense of urgency to the chase sequence. I think there is some good action in this film. Some really kind of fluid, very, very tense action. But yeah, what a rough way to start the film. It's interesting you talk about Don Bluth, because I feel like don't a lot of Don Bluth's films open with like a parent dying and then a, a child being left alone in the wilderness to kind of survive? I feel like that's the beginning of The Land Before Time as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not quite as early on in the film as this one is. But yeah, again, I was saying that The Rescuers had a lot in common with later Don Bluth films, and it's mainly the horrors visited upon innocent lost children is what Don Bluth seems to love, especially in those early films of his. And you get a bit of that in The Rescuers, and you definitely get a bit of that here. Again, I don't think Don Bluth had that much of an influence on how this film went down, so it might just be that there was something in the air at this point, that it was just in vogue to torture children in your animated movies. Which, again, is a throwback to Walt, because you had Pinocchio and you had Bambi and you had Dumbo, and that's what that was all about, too. I think what this opening really does, though, is that it instantly bonds you with Todd, because you feel so sorry for this little guy, and it's so visceral that you just want the best for him. And when he immediately then runs into Big Mama, the, the owl, and he's kind of rubbing against her for comfort, you just, you're like, look at this poor little thing. 
Sam, at some point we need to talk about Disney owls because we've had a lot of chat about Disney horses as a thing. But there are many, many Disney owls. We, we've had owl in Winnie the Pooh. We had cosplay owl from Sleeping Beauty. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Disney owls should be its own brand. Got a whole list here, right here. We've got Friend Owl from Bambi. We've got Archimedes from The Sword and the Stone. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a Professor Owl in So Dear to My Heart, the live-action film. And there is also a Professor Owl in Toot, Whistle, Plunk and Boom, the <laughs> Ward Kimball short. And apparently... Well, this is from Walt's mouth. When he was a kid, Walt Disney murdered an owl in cold blood. What? What? <laughs> yeah. This podcast should have a warning because it's like, for, <laughs> if you are upset by animal cruelty, yeah. if, if you weren't already put off Walt Disney, the human man, this might be the thing that puts the nail on that coffin. He just killed an owl. When? For, Why? How? He was a little kid and he came across an owl. I swear I'm not making any of this up. And he just kind of strangled it to death. Okay. Wow. That... This is the, he is he has told this story. This is from Walt himself. Beep, 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 beep. Just a little update. Sam has looked back over his Walt Disney owl murder notes and has an update for us all. Yeah, I'd like to apologise to the Walt Disney estate for claiming that Walt Disney strangled an owl to death. In fact, what happened was, in his own words, he threw him to the ground and stomped on him. Stomped, stomped him to death. So, that's that, that's not better, but it's different. Still not cool, Walt. Still not cool. Anyway, back to the show. Beep, 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 beep. And apparently he was always haunted by the guilt of that. It's something he felt terrible for his whole life. Good. And he never... <laughs> He never hurt animals again, and it's been suggested that this led to the extreme empathy for animals displayed in his movies. Wow. Thing about owls as well, though, right? This is a theory I've had for a while. Mm. I think Don Bluth has a serious problem with owls, because (laughs) his movies feature some truly horrific owl villains. So The Secret of Nim has a terrifying evil owl, and Rockadoodle... The villain in that is, a, is an evil owl as well. I think Don Bluth hates owls, and he was sick to death of all this pro-owl propaganda coming out <laughs> of Disney. And when he was forced to work on The Fox and the Hound, possibly the most pro-owl movie that Disney had yet made, he was like, I'm done with this. The world needs to know what owls are really like. I'm going to make secret of Nim, and I'm going to terrify loads of children with this big evil owl. And evidently many of the Disney animators agreed and went with him. That was it. Exactly. That was his pitch. Exactly. So the opening of the film really then centres around Todd, and once Todd is in with Big Mama, the owl, that's when he meets Copper. And let's talk about Todd and Copper, right? Because this is what is so heartbreaking about this film. Like Bambi, it's told over a period of time. You have like a year's gap that you age up with these characters and you see them in their youth as friends in the forest. So Todd and Copper meet as innocents. Todd has lost his mum. Copper is just a friendly little puppy. And they don't see any reason why they can't be friends. And then over the course of the film, there is a big time jump there is more or less a year's time jump uh and in that time copper the dog grows up and is a hunting dog and is responsible for many many animal deaths you see all these uh, raccoon pelts and i think even some fox pelts on the back of a truck being driven that copper is like directly responsible for and you take these two characters who you really like both of them they introduce you to both of them as kids that you relate to both of them, and then they turn those characters against each other in a way that feels really twisted. There's a complex morality going on in this film 
that feels like a step up from any other Disney movie, which have fairly been kind of black and white in their good versus evil, whereas this is, like, really twisted. So do your sympathies lie particularly with one or the other in this movie? I guess with Todd, because the film centres you with Todd because of that opening. And Todd is the one who, when Copper comes back from his sabbatical year of becoming a killing machine, Todd is the one who's going, we're still mates, right? And Copper's the one who's like, nah, we're not mates. And so I think you feel it more through Todd, the kind of betrayal, but I think you also understand where Copper's coming from a bit, because you know he's been raised that way. So the tragedy is partly the way that Copper has been raised, as well as the fact that Todd can't see what's happened and why they can't be friends. And then it twists things even further when the other hunting dog, Chief, gets hit by that train? What the hell? Oh my god, it was so intense. And it becomes even more personal for Copper to be like, we can't be friends, this is the collateral damage that comes from this emotional entanglement it's so messy and dark and twisted but yeah i think overall team todd but also team neither team animals only team screw all the humans who turn him into a hunting dog would it have helped if chief had been killed if if chief had died would that have made (laughs) you more sympathetic towards copper I don't know because Chief was chasing Todd and apart from the fact that he's a hunting dog and he's been raised that way he didn't need to do that it's not Todd's fault that he was being chased by a dog who wanted to kill him and that then that dog was hit by a train as a result of that alright okay Uh, what's your take on it then the reason why I bring it up is that this was incredibly contentious a lot of the animators a lot of the younger animators led by Ron Clements were pushing for the death of Chief Mm. that they wanted Chief gone and this is an example of the younger generation thinking this movie could be darker and that in fact the themes would work better if it was darker that he has to die in order for copper's story to work for copper to be as vengeful as he is in the third act of this movie we need something more serious to have happened than this character chief hobbling around the house with his like one of his paws in a sling in quite a comedic way right the the consequences don't feel as real as they could art stevens one of the directors refused claiming that We've never killed a main character in a Disney film and we're not starting now. Which, despite what everything about this film would imply, suggests that Art Stevens has never seen Bambi. (laughs) (laughs) We don't kill main characters in Disney movies. Bambi, what's that? I've never heard of him. So Ron Miller, the new president, son-in-law of Walt Disney, backed Art Stevens on this. And they went back and edited a death scene that had already been animated of Chief so you can see his eyes open and close. There's a scene where he's lying still on the ground and the only way you can tell he's alive is because his eyes kind of open and shut. And that was done after the fact. Wow. I can see how that would have changed the emphasis of Copper's story. But I can also see why Disney would be like, yeah, we're not going to do that. Because even though it's not really his fault, Todd is kind of complicit in that. It's already a, a twisted enough morality without then adding death <laughs> into the mix. Yeah. But I, I think the reason that feels so twisted is because of how well that opening act works with them both as kids, right? It's a lovely, lovely sequence where Todd is following like a butterfly through the woods, which again feels like, I don't know, a bit of a symbol of innocence. There's something so sweet about that him just walking around after this butterfly and then we cut to Copper and Copper's sniffing around and he smells something he's never smelled before and and when they meet each other it's so sweet and 
the fact that these two animals just see each other and in that very childlike way are just like, well, we're immediately friends now, has a real kind of a lovely truth to it, I think. There's a lot less of that in the movie than I remember. A lot less of just these two kids cavorting around as kids having fun and, and getting to know each other that's my presiding image of the movie is this this joyful childhood that they share which is then ruined but it's about a third into the movie it's about 30 minutes in that copper goes off on the hunting trip to return a year later but i think most people's presiding image of these characters is them as children for example and that might just be because like lizzie they turned it off screaming after 10 minutes <laughs> and, and didn't get to the adult stuff but i think a lot of the advertising for this movie that and a lot of the trailers and what little merchandise there is centers around them as children as well so i was expecting there to be more of that but um i think maybe there could have been more of that if it was a modern animated movie where you generally be afforded an extra 20 to 30 minutes i think you could have spent more time with them as kids but I think it works. I think the fact that we do get as upset as we do by the ending of this friendship speaks to how well they are able to get that across in what little time they have to do so. Yeah, it's very efficient, isn't it? And, uh, I mean, it really it hits home. As soon as Todd says that line, we'll always be friends forever, won't we? Inside, you're screaming because you know that's not going to be true. <sighs> but maybe in another world, people talk about the Disneyfication of things and the softening of things, and you could imagine another world where Disney makes this film that is about the fact that this fox and hound do stay friends against all the odds, whereas they take a much darker, bleaker tack, presumably taken from the book, with this one that I guess the texture of the story is about them not being able to be friends. But you could imagine the reputation of Disney, or maybe the sort of stories that Disney tells now, would be about them remaining friends despite everything. And I think they pack in some good kind of adventures between these two as kids. So especially that bit where Todd is flirting with danger too much because he goes right up to Chief while Chief's sleeping and he's a bit cocky and he doesn't really know what he's invoking here. He doesn't know why there's so much danger about the fact that this is a hunting dog and that he is a fox. But that is a real changing moment when Todd gets chased by chief because it's this realization other than the fact that his mum is killed in the opening five minutes that other animals and other people want to hurt him that that is a kind of a real moment of experience for him yeah and it means that we have to establish then chief as this dangerous character as this sort of villainous character you know when copper is is one and todd not to climb around on chief it i can't remember any of the actual lines like uh watch out he's got big sharp teeth don't get near that mouth he's gonna eat you i can't remember the actual <laughs> lines <laughs> he he's gonna eat you i think is the line um <laughs> but other than that chief is played as this quite comedic character you've got that very funny pat buttram voice um which we've had for comedic characters like the drunken muskrat in the rescuers and like napoleon the dog in the aristocats and it's quite hard to take him seriously as a threat it's quite hard to take Amos slade seriously as a threat i think he doesn't have a very scary design he is a hunter who appears on screen unlike the one in Bambi, who is made more terrifying by the fact that we never see the humans in that film. And he's just quite a cranky old guy. In my plot synopsis, I called him cantankerous after flirting with calling him evil. Because he's not really. I mean, you know, beyond the extent that hunting in general is something I vehemently disagree with. Same. Certainly, for, yeah. So, beyond that, 
he's not depicted as an outright villainous character. He does have some redeeming features. He really loves his dogs and he can be quite harsh to them in his efforts to educate them, but he is always complimenting them as well. And especially you see he has real affection towards Copper, which is a bit of a redeeming feature. So I think the villains in this movie or the antagonists in this movie aren't really villains, which I think contributes towards it being a more balanced fox versus hound story than, than we could have got. I think the hound, I think you're right, absolutely is not the character that we're led to sympathise with for most of the movie, but I also think he has a sympathetic story. The characters around him are sympathetic to an extent. It's not a cut and dry good versus evil narrative of the kind that we've seen a lot in Disney movies so far. And I think for that reason, it's a more realistic depiction of prejudice than we've seen in Disney movies so far as well. It's the first time Disney has really tried to tackle these themes of prejudice head-on since Dumbo, I would say. And it opens up this like race relations reading that isn't really there in movies like Lady and the Tramp, because here, prejudice and difference is something that's enforced by power structures. It's not, these two aren't natural enemies. The, the idea here isn't that foxes and hounds, if left to their own devices, would always try and kill each other. Maybe that's true, I don't know much about those animals, but as we see in this movie, these are both actually animals who have been domesticated, the fox included, and therefore it is the power structures to which they belong, the world in which they live, which has shaped them into enemies rather than any natural animosity between them. Yeah, I mean, it, the way that this played out, it struck me as basically almost being like a gang narrative, having watched this only a couple of weeks after seeing Spielberg's West Side Story, where it's like, oh, these people from opposite sides of the tracks who have this very kind of pure connection that then is going to be corrupted by these external forces. It feels like a very kind of archetypal narrative in that sense it, for me that's what it kind of read as yeah that you have these characters you meet as kids and then it's when they are kind of socialized to become enemies that that becomes complicated or even things like uh, that i don't know if you've seen the film blue story that came out a couple of years ago ratman's film again it's literally about kids who are friends in school and then because they're from different postcodes when they grow up are then forced to kind of be enemies so it really plays into that kind of narrative but i think there is quite a lot of nuance as you say in the fact that the hunter man amos is not an outright villain and you sort of understand that copper has been trained to be a hunting dog that that's not really his choice and that's him being what the world tells him he has to be but I think it really, it does bring the pain when these two are grown up and they reconnect. The moment when they first kind of come face to face again and yeah, Todd is really sure that like, hey, we're still friends, right? And when Copper says, no, those times are over, I'm a hunting dog now. Todd's face at that point should be a go-to reaction gift because he's so shocked. His little face, it's heartbreaking. And I think what they do with the animation is even though they've aged the characters up, I think they still kind of move they still have some of the behaviors that feel of a piece with who they were as kids you still see those kids in those characters when they're grown up which then adds to the complicated feelings of them also then being enemies at that point yeah and then that's kind of mirrored or reflected in the scene when they first really kind of come to blows when they have this real like scrap and their faces suddenly shift in a way that removes 
any semblance of the characters that they were of children and really any semblance of anthropomorphism in general. They become animalistic when they fight. And in particular, when we see that kind of like angry, furious, vicious fox face on Todd, who's up until now been a very gentle character, that's shocking as well, right? It, it shook me to my core when I saw these characters squaring off like that. It's a great piece of animated acting that also highlights the gulf between the cutesy anthropomorphic Disney characters that we're used to and real animal nature. You get that a little bit in Lady and the Tramp when Tramp fights the rat as well. His face shifts from the friendly one that we're used to to something more vicious, to something that looks like a killer. But it's a more prolonged scene in this film and I think it's used to better effect because it ties in with the themes of this movie. These Animals have been quote-unquote dehumanised by the system within which they live that expects them to fight each other. And that ferocity, I think, really comes across in that final act, in the fight. I don't know about you, but for me this was easily the most kind of tense finale that we've had in a Disney movie. I think because your loyalties are so split, it's heartbreaking to see these characters fighting each other. You don't want either of them to be harmed, but you know that this isn't going to end well. So I think that made the dramatic tension of this film is way above anything else we've seen in any other Disney movie. Especially, I I was talking before about how (laughs) when they're kids and Todd says, we're going to be friends forever, right? Uh, And you know that it's all going to go wrong. There's that moment, again, very Bambi-ish, when uh, Todd meets the the lady fox, another kind of Disney lady fox um, with doe eyes to follow on from Maid Marian and Robin Hood. But when they strike up their life together in a way that's very kind of Bambi and Feline, just shove a woman in the final act so that he's got a love interest in there. Um, he has that bit where he's like, this is everything I've ever wanted, or I'm happier than I've ever been. And you're like, why did you say that, man? It's all going to kick off again. And uh, yeah, that is when Copper runs in and everything goes nuts. And then we get a big bear. We get a big bear. Yeah, my my dad's comment was like, oh, this is like the Revenant, Disney style. (laughs) (laughs) Which he was not wrong, because again, if you're talking about ferocious animals and leaning into animal nature, that bear is a big old physical threat. Yeah, he's enormous. He has no trace of humanity, which means he has no trace of remorse. He is a killing machine, and he is going to kill our protagonists if they don't do anything about it. And this is the first major um, performance from Glenn Keane, who is probably the most respected animator of Disney's Renaissance era. I would say he's probably number one. Eric Goldberg might be up there as well, who animated the genie in Aladdin. But Glenn King did Ariel and the Little Mermaid, and he did The Beast and Beauty and the Beast, which are two all-time excellent performances within the world of animation. And you can see the talent on display here. The, the, The bear, the way the bear moves, and the way the bear is so at odds with anything else that we've seen in this movie so far in terms of the degree to which he's stripped off humanity, the degree to which he is animalistic, it's it's really remarkable and impressive. Yeah, and I think the, the viscerality of that bear attack extends to everyone else as well, because I think Amos shoots the bear and like a chunk of flesh goes flying and it's like bright red blood. Just, I feel like everything is cranked up in that final act you feel the ferocity of todd and copper and the bear and even yeah the human impact on that is very real and visceral as well this is a heavy film a very heavy film Uh, what were they thinking 
So not only did Todd's sudden love interest in the final act form another Bambi connection for me, but I thought there was something almost Bambi-ish about the role that the music plays here. There are some songs in this film... I will say I didn't think many of them were that memorable and obviously very different style to Bambi musically because there's a lot of like hoedown-y stuff here. The Disney loves a good old hoedown. But the way that those songs maybe play a slightly choric role felt quite Bambi-ish. Although I guess in this case they are sung on screen or in universe at points by characters like Big Mama. Yeah, I think Big Mama and her friends Dinky and Boomer form together <laughs> just laughing at dinky, dinky and, and boomer, boomer. <laughs> the, that that trio of birds because dinky and boomer are the little new york wise guy bird and and the yellow bird aren't they who are involved with another character who we are waiting to discuss we are we are keeping one character back to give him the time he deserves uh, but that, that trio big mama and dinky and boomer i was looking at them like here we go three caballeros 2.0 the trio of just mismatched birds going off on adventures. There is potential there. They are great. I would like to see more of them. And they do form this like Greek chorus commenting on the action of the film of a sort, right? And so even though Big Mama sings the songs, they aren't non-diegetic like they are in Bambi. I think they still form that choric role. For example, probably the most memorable song from the movie, Best of Friends, is sung by Big Mama, not to another character, but about Todd and Copper as she's observing their friendship play out. There are some other songs in here that are a bit more weird, though. Like, Are you going to talk about Be Natural, the weird, like, fox sex song that comes up towards the end? No, but you can. Because that is just a weird song with Todd. And is it Vixie? Is that the Vixie, Vixie, yeah. the Vixie? Great name for a fox, very original. And again, in classic Disney style, they have to have, like, a date where they wander around and they kind of walk near some water and he kind of messes up the date. But there's this weird song where the narrator's like, oh, you both foxes, do what you're gonna do, get it on. <laughs> I was like, what is this? Another tone in this film. Uh, the film really <laughs> slows down for that detour into romance, but it's just a strange song. I guess it fits into the film's overall themes of, I don't know, nature versus nurture and how naturally these two were friends as kids and then it's nurture that turns them against each other and then this song be natural is kind of yeah lean into your natural instincts and stuff but it was weird for generally chased disney to have this song about these two foxes together where it's like oh be natural <laughs> i was like oh this is weird it's really doing something for me that little voice that you've got there then <laughs> i can't remember what how the songs actually go it's been like well over a week since i saw this film <laughs> so i'm just putting over a vibe more than an actual yeah. melody i think big mama's really interested in pimping out those foxes <laughs> that's what struck me is like she's really invested in this relationship and i guess part of it's just our oh, todd's had to go out in the big wide world and i want them to have some company or whatever but she wants them to have a very particular kind of company she is big mama is hyping them up from the sidelines yeah but no i'm just going to mention songs like um lack of education and goodbye may seem forever which are kind of like spoken word pieces so, like, Goodbye May Seem Forever is the one that Widow Tweed sings slash speaks to Todd as she's driving away with him in the car to let him free. Oh, God, that's so, such a sad scene as well. There's, like, all these little pockets of emotion in the film where she dumps him in the woods and, and is like, oh, I've got to leave him here. Oh, heartbreaking. Yeah. 
But it's it's just a weird way to perform a song. I don't know if it was just like the realize that actress couldn't really sing after she was cast, <laughs> but she just kind of speaks everything over the music in a vaguely rhythmic manner. Precursor and to then... hip hop, right there. Fox and the Hound. Where was Grandmaster Flash in all this? On 1981, so Whoa. peak of his powers. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I have to say, I did not find the songs massively memorable in this one. I thought they were kind of interesting to note the role that they play. But it's like, again, it felt like Disney sort of moving away from it being a musical musical and more just a Disney film, I guess, will have some songs in it. Because that was kind of the case with The Rescuers as well. There was songs in there, but it wasn't a musical it felt like they were trying to do something else, but they were like, I guess we should have some songs because that's what we do. So let's like just chuck a couple of songs over the top of what's already happening in the film. But I think we've waited long enough. I think, Sam, we have to talk about... I was going to say the elephant in the room, but really, I think we should say the caterpillar in the room. Let's talk about Squeaks, baby. <laughs> Very good. Very good. So I think I've said before on the podcast that I can tell when I'm watching one of these films, I can tell the character that you're going to be obsessed with, Sam. And we're getting lots of messages from people on Twitter and my mum and dad know which characters we're going to love. And this time it was just a name popping up in the credits and I already was hooked. When you get that cast list and it squeaks the caterpillar... I was so ready to meet this guy, and he did not let me down. Because it's, it's the only one that's, like, a fictional character in the credits, right? Kurt Russell, Mickey Rooney, blah, 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 and Squeaks the Caterpillar. Yes. He gets the and, which is great. <laughs> it's like, in a Bond movie where it's, like, and Dame Joogie Dench or whatever, it's and Squeaks the Caterpillar. Squeaks has got a good agent. <laughs> and it, it just hooks you right away. Who is this guy? Squeaks the, Squeaks the Caterpillar? intriguing what's he going to be all about and it turns out he's just he's just a cute little caterpillar who does not want to be devoured he's a very minor part of the plot but a very major part of my and i imagine your enjoyment of the movie yeah i'd say like 90 percent of my enjoyment of this very dark film was the pure japery of squeaks the caterpillar um being chased relentlessly by boomer and dinky who, yeah, just want to eat this caterpillar, and he is, well, I was going to say several steps ahead of them the whole way, but really, he's one precarious foot ahead of them the whole time, because they are really, really on his tail. But those are just really fun little chase sequences, very cartoony antics. You know what it is, Ben? It's antics. We, we've decried all yes. of the antic interludes in all of these older Disney movies, like Cinderella especially, where it's just a cat chasing some mice for five minutes in the middle of this movie it's a blessed relief in the fox and the hound we really need it really need it one of my favorite squeaks moments is when he is literally as snug as a bug in a rug he's like all like wiggling up and he's he's wrapping himself in a leaf is it yeah and that was just the cozy energy that i needed in this in this bleak relentless film i mean it's still kind of bleak for squeaks he's bringing joy to us but he's being relentlessly hounded by these birds, by this woodpecker. <laughs> a woodpecker is just like a weapon of mass destruction yeah. from a caterpillar's perspective, just constantly blasting through whatever little hidey hole Squeaks has, has wrapped himself up in. It's it's terrifying. It's like being chased by the Terminator, you know? So it's, we can laugh, but really, for Squeaks, <laughs> this is about as bleak as the rest of the story is for us watching it. And as well, it's the only real example of genuine natural predation in this mm -hmm. movie, because we, we talked about how, you know, the fox and the hound are both domesticated. They don't have a predator-prey relationship, really. 
it's it's something slightly more personal for them, especially after the mere mean of chief. It's it's about revenge. This is our only example in the natural world of predators chasing prey, birds chasing caterpillar. It's interesting that it's made comic as a juxtaposition to the foxhound conflict, which is presented as more serious because the emotions involved are more human, mm. uh, as opposed to this very animalistic predator-prey conflict, which is just reminiscent of the Looney Tunes and Tom and Jerry in in a way that a lot of the antics in the older Disney movies were. But again, like I said, it, it just feels more welcome in this movie. It, it is important to break up the tragedy of, of Copper and Todd's story with something funnier, and Squeaks is the agent of that, and for that we thank him. Bless you, Squeaks, bless you. Yeah, it's interesting you say the Looney Tunes thing, because I think the first jape we get with Boomer and Squeaks has that moment where Boomer kind of pecks the branch that he's standing on, the branch falls off the tree, and then he hovers in the air for a couple of seconds in that classic mm. Looney Tunes cartoony style. So it brings a very different tone to the film. Yeah, that's something that goes all the way back to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and it'll continue with characters like the Genie and, and Timon and Pumbaa. The supporting characters, the comedic characters, are animated in a more cartoony way, and sometimes, as a result, aren't necessarily beholden to the laws of physics that the other characters are. Like, for example, it's crucial to this movie that we believe if Todd gets shot by Slade, he will die or he will be injured by a bullet hitting him. Whereas you don't necessarily get the sense that even if Boomer was to, like, peck straight through Squeaks, he would be damaged, right? He would probably just, like, pick himself right back up and and keep on running like Jerry would or like Tweety Bird would, you know? Like a no good woim, <laughs> as he gets called at one point. Um, and he is the original Heimlich from A Bug's Life with that reveal at the end with the butterfly transformation that I wasn't really expecting that. But my mum called it when we were watching it all together. She was like, he's going to be a butterfly now. And I was like, <gasps> there he is, Squeaks 2.0. That's a rule as true as Chekhov's gun, is that if there is a caterpillar in your movie, he will turn into a butterfly by the end of the movie. I was going to say Rytherman's caterpillar, but it's not Rytherman. Who would we attribute this to? Richard Rich's caterpillar? (laughs) But I think we need to make this official. Should we do the fanfare? He has to be a Disney versity legend, right? Squeaks the caterpillar. He's in. He's well in there. He's right in the canon. What a glorious part of this film. Right, well, that was fun. Shall we get on to the uh, the ending of this bad boy? <laughs> That's basically the tone of The Fox and the Hound. It's like, oh, it was fun doing this squeaks bit. Now we have to get back to The Fox and the Hound. Oh, God. Because we've been talking about the fact that all the way through this film, you feel really twisted because you care about both of these characters. The final fight that they have is really vicious. And... I think the film thinks it's giving you sort of a happy ending with the fact that both of these characters are still alive at the end of the film. But as we discussed earlier on in the episode, maybe a Disney film now would have been like, hey, these guys can be friends no matter what. And the actual ending here is that they go their separate ways. Copper saves Todd from the hunter's gun. So there's a level of friendship there or camaraderie but they are not friends. They go their separate ways and bang, that is the end of the film. Have fun with that, kids. Yeah, I think the very bleak and intense bear versus fox and hound action sequence that precedes this is necessary to kind of take you to that really dark place so that you believe that the ending we are given is a a relatively happy one, even though 
compared to what we would expect from a movie like this, as you say, it's not. But maybe the idea is that it's more realistic because we end with this very Bambi-like shot of Todd and Vixie standing up on high up in the forest and watching the dogs and the adults, the humans, Widow Tweed and Amos Slade, just carrying on with their lives in the little settlement that they've got in the forest. And I think, obviously, this is very reminiscent of how Bambi ends because the suggestion is life goes on, the cycle continues. But actually, what happens in Bambi is that is a cycle that continues. Bambi ends up in the same place that his father is in the beginning of the movie. But here, something's kind of being broken. The domestic life to which Todd was accustomed, it's being shown that he cannot survive within that world. And I think that's the difference between this and Bambi because... In Bambi, we're ostensibly being shown animals as they are in the wild. Man is a presence that is felt but not seen. But here, the hunter is a prominent character. We've got another prominent human character in Widow Tweed. And the fox is domesticated. He's effectively Widow Tweed's dog. So the core conflict isn't necessarily between humanity and and the wilderness because neither animal is behaving naturally. It's not a story about nature. It's a story about the relationship between man and nature we've got two different versions of how humans can coexist with the natural world we've got widow tweed who embodies this pastoral ideal of like living in harmony with the natural world with wildlife whereas slade wants to but he wants animals to fear or obey him he wants to use animals functionally he does show affection for the dogs but primarily they have a purpose to him but ultimately he changes his ways and Todd leaves with Vixie into the forest. So the film's stance seems not to be just that foxes are incompatible with hounds, but that wild animals are incompatible with domestic civilization, even if in many ways they are shown as more civilized than the hounds, which I think comes through in in Todd's more neutral accent compared to uh, especially the kind of coarser rural brogue of Chief delivered by Pat Buttram. So I think that the similarity between how this movie ends and how Bambi ends actually serves to highlight the differences between the message they're trying to convey specifically about humans in nature. Yeah, and with Bambi, with that full circle ending of Bambi, you get the sense that it is full circle, that we're back at the beginning. Whereas I feel like with this, it's a new but different equilibrium rather than the same equilibrium that's come back. It's not ended where it began. It ends in a very different place where it began because really the beginning was that friendship. And it really hits at home because they play again that little clip over the end scene the we'll always be friends forever won't we and you're like no no you won't that's the opposite of the ending why are you reminding of this why are you really hitting that home it's all yeah really hammering in the tragedy and that by the way is the line that played in the trailers for this movie that were attached to every disney vhs that i own seemingly <laughs> and i think that's one of the reasons why this movie sticks in the brain as one that's incredibly sad for children of that era it's not just the movie like i was convinced that someone died in this movie the first time Mm -hmm. i watched this movie as an adult it was like so wait why was i that sad did someone not die i was absolutely traumatized by this it's not it's just about this friendship disintegrating which is very sad but i don't know i think part of the reason why i was so kind of obsessed with it as a kid is because this trailer was on every vhs i could i could avoid the fox and the hounds but i couldn't avoid the trailer and hearing you'll always be friends forever won't we every time i wanted to watch 
<laughs> freaking Hercules or something, you know? It's not right. Especially, I feel like the other advert that was on all those VHSs was the Space Mountain Disneyland Paris oh, advert, yeah. which got you really hyped up. That was, like, well exciting. And then you're like, ooh, this Fox and the Hound, they will be friends forever, right? No, no, they won't. And that's a lesson we all had to learn the hard way. Okay, so now that we're done with our main discussion of the Fox and the Hound, thank God we got through it, Sam, we made it. It brings us to the section of the show we call Discarded, where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from and dig up all the dark, weird stuff that didn't make it in. But how much darker do you get than this, Sam? <laughs> Does this even go darker in the source material? Because there is a book that this is based on. It gets a lot darker in the source material. What? It's, it doesn't even compare. Disney let me did guess. A... <laughs> okay, okay Ch- go on. Let, let me guess. Chief actually dies? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Does either Todd or Copper die? Oh my god, you're giving me a look. Okay, tell me everything, I need to know. <laughs> okay, Disney changed this a lot. Okay. It really begs the question of why they even bothered buying this property, because they had to do a hell of a lot of surgery on this to make it even vaguely appropriate for children. So, <laughs> firstly, the, the Fox and the Hound in the novel are never friends. That's not what? part of it. The whole friendship thing, the whole two friends from different worlds who, who should be enemies, that's got nothing to do with the novel. Really? That's like the core of the film. Exactly. The novel is purely about a fox and a hound trying to kill each other. <laughs> that's what? all it is. So Chief in this is killed, mm-hmm. but he is a younger dog. So in this, Chief is the younger dog, Copper is kind of the veteran, and Copper is initially jealous of Chief, so that is being reversed for the film as well. Because the master favours Chief, he's just called the master in this, favours Chief over the older Copper. But when Chief is killed by a train while chasing Todd, which they did adapt for the film, who is just a a regular old fox in this, has no pre-existing relationship with the Hound, Copper and his master begin, like, a John Wick-style single-minded revenge mission that lasts for years and years and years, okay? So they are just absolutely, I think he said hounding. I guess, yeah, that is what they're doing. They are hunting Todd to the ends of the earth. Todd eventually, as in the film, finds a mate and has children. But this is about halfway through the book, right? Finds a mate, has children. And the master gasses the babies to death in their (gasps) den and, what? and then kills the mother as well. What? And that all happens? They don't. They don't get out. They don't survive somehow. No, no, no. They're all, oh. they're all dead. Todd survives. All of oh. the kids and the mother are dead. Don't worry too much though, because later on he settles down with a second mate. And oh, he has, just moves on. Yeah. He's just fine. Well, he's a fox, you know? He settles down with a second... The, the, the animals are a lot less anthropomorphized in this. Mm-hmm. He's, he, part of the premise of the novel is that he's trying to be quite true to life, I think. So Todd settles down with a second mate and has a new litter of kits, and uh, the, the master and the hound kill them all again. It happens oh, twice. Oh, what? Yeah. So that scene where Amos basically like tries to smoke them out of the hole is based, I guess, on that sequence? Yeah, so that's that's the way he kills the first ones. The second ones he kills with like a bear trap style contraption, which oh. is also kind of seeded in the film, but doesn't really come to anything. So yes, uh, two fox massacres, both of which Jesus. Todd manages to survive. And eventually the foxes in the forest start running rabid and a nearby town enlists the master to wipe them out, a bit like Quint in Jaws. Oh my God, okay. <laughs> And he more or less does. So the the master and the hound are on an absolute tear, just murdering foxes all over the place, often with poison. 
the master accidentally poisons a human child in the process. Oh. So that's kind of part of his like Walter White style spiral <laughs> towards the dark side, uh, if he wasn't there already. And eventually Todd is the last fox standing. And Copper chases him into the forest, pursues him relentlessly for days on end until Todd drops dead from exhaustion. Oh, they just chase him until he just his body gives up. Yeah. As the last fox in, I don't know, a hundred mile radius or something. Jeez, this is so bleak. So Copper returns to the town and is hailed as a hero dog because he, he wiped out all of the rabid foxes. Um, but eventually his master gets too old to hunt and he has to retire to a nursing home. His kind of mind's filling him a little bit. And before he leaves, he takes his gun from off the shelf one last time and tearfully shoots Copper in the head. Why does he kill Copper? What? I don't know. That's brutal. Oh my god. So, both Todd and Copper die. Chief dies. Both of Todd's families die. <laughs> yeah. Every All other the fox foxes dies. in the local area. A small child gets yeah. poisoned. And Willie Ritherman looked at that book and was like, oh, we could do something with that. Because <laughs> he had a pet fox. That's just how the story goes. He had oh. a pet fox and he was like... Oh, I love foxes. This is a book about foxes. <laughs> anyway, I know what you're getting, Lizzie, for our next birthday. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, can you imagine? She'd never forgive me, ever. I'd have to give however much money to the fox charity <laughs> that she's Do you want to hear of. something a bit lighter? <laughs> yeah, please, please do. Okay, so we're talking about Wooly Ritherman. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about some of the changes that he wanted to make to the movie. Because he, I said before, he was part of a push and pull between... Ritherman, the directors and the younger animators and Ron Miller, various parties wanted to make the movie even darker and have Chief die and Wooly Ritherman in particular wanted it to be just that little bit lighter and the context for this is that he was really starting to see his power slip on this movie. It was the first one that he hadn't directed. Ron Miller was given a lot more responsibility to the younger directors who he favoured for whatever reason. So Ritherman tried to assert himself, tried to make a power play with the most woolly Ritherman move ever, okay? So he insisted that the second act needed a big musical number performed by a bird, a new character, not one of the existing birds, voiced by Phil Harris, okay? Oh, yes, I'm on Willy Ritherman's team here, hashtag <laughs> yeah. Team Ritherman. So he's bringing back his boy Phil Harris, who was in like most of the movies that he directed for Disney, and this song was... I'm not going to be able to say this. This song was entitled Scooby Dooby Dooby Doo, Let Your Body Turn to Goo. <laughs> what is that? Okay, I was fully on board about 20 seconds ago, but now I can see why there was maybe a bit of pushback and people maybe saying to Willie Ritherman, this song, this title. And I can't find the song. Some of these deleted songs you can find, like, uh, they've been put on DVDs or whatever in the past. Unless I'm mistaken, Scooby Dooby Dooby Doo, Let Your Body Turn to Goo, it hasn't been storyboarded (laughs) or anything that that I've been able to find. Um, Maybe it didn't even exist. Maybe this was just a title that Ritherman came out. I will write the song later. (laughs) Um, Also, that does sound... You can imagine Phil Harris singing that right now. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm just going to try and do a voice. I don't like that. Let your body turn to goo. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, so we'll have to imagine that's a metaphor about like kind of dancing or whatever. Like your body's going to turn to goo because you're dancing so hard. I can <laughs> I imagine know. that going to a, like a heffalumps and woozles place. Yeah. Uh huh. I don't like it. 
It's because it sounds like initially it sounds like some kind of sci-fi ray gun that's going to turn your body to goo. Right. right? That's what I was thinking, but it, that would be very out of place in the Fox and the Hound. So, um, <laughs> Art Stevens, the director, demanded that it was removed due to it being utter nonsense. <laughs> Like this is this is nothing for this movie. Get rid of it, uh, and, and Ron Miller took his side. So this was apparently what caused Wooly Riverman to admit that animation was a young man's game and basically step back from the studio, which I love. What an absolute kamikaze player. <laughs> it's like, I am staking my whole career on scooby dooby dooby doo let your body turn to goo. If this doesn't go off, that's it for me. It's, it's all or nothing for Riverman, baby. He had his moment of, is it me? No, it's the children who are wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So there you go. Light and shade in this episode's discarded. That is amazing. I really hope... So we've done some digging and cannot find that song, but if you know somewhere where that song exists, or if you just have an idea of what that song would sound like and want to send that to us, please do. That would be absolutely incredible. (laughs) We need to hear Scooby Dooby Dooby Doo, let your body turn to goo. You'd think the Scooby Doo people at Hanna-Barbera would have something to say about that, but maybe they're putting an extra doobie. If it was Scooby Dooby Doo, that's copyright infringement. If it's Scooby Dooby Dooby Doo, that's the sweet spot. That is, and that's got a rhythmic sweet spot as well. Mm. Like I can feel what the pocket of that would be. You Scooby, know? Dooby, Dooby, Doo, let your body turn to goo. It's a great rhythm. Again, you're taking it to a hip-hop place, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what he wanted. We were denied a Phil Harris rap. Well, we're talking, it's 1981. It's, it's, the, it's the golden age of hip-hop. It could have happened. That would have been amazing. Absolutely amazing. So... Okay, even though that song didn't make it into the film, which surely would have earned rave reviews if it was in there, we need to talk about what the critical reception of The Fox and the Hound ended up being. So, what did critics say at the time? Was it too dark for critics? Were people flabbergasted by what Disney had become? You're going to like this, Ben. This is from the New York Times, okay? Mm -hmm. The film breaks no new ground whatsoever. It's a pretty, relentlessly cheery, old-fashioned sort of Disney cartoon feature chock full of bouncy songs of an upbeatness that is stickier than crazy glue and played by animals more anthropomorphic than the humans that occasionally appear. Relentlessly cheery. (laughs) Who the hell wrote that? That's the most wrong review I think I've heard in a long time. That sounds like someone who maybe saw a poster and just wrote the review based on that. Saw that bit in the trailer that was like, we'll be friends forever, right? And they were like, I've seen this Disney film before. another movie about animals being friends forever. We don't need to watch that. That is wild. Did they watch the film? Come on. LA Times also very mixed praised the animation from the new crop of animators, which I find interesting because it's like, oh, they're publicising that this is a new crop of animators. This is something that people are generally aware of. But wrote that somehow eight writers have contrived a story as frail as puff pastry. I love a good simile in these old reviews. You get a lot of good similes. You should take note, Ben. More similes in your reviews. Yeah, some like just really random ones as well. I think if I wrote as frail as puff pastry, if it wasn't a film about cooking, (laughs) it would probably get a big red line through it. I think the storytelling in this one is solid. As as horrifying as that story is, it kind of cleanly sets up. These two are best friends, then they become enemies. Can they work that out? And the answer is no. I think that's a fairly clean story. Roger Ebert was one of the only really positive reviews. For all its familiar qualities, this movie marks something of a departure for the Disney studio and its movement is in an interesting direction. It's not just cute animals and frightened adventures and a happy ending. It's also a rather thoughtful mediation 
on how society determines our behaviour. So that's kind of what, what we were talking about. It, yeah. It's approaching its themes in a more mature way than we're generally used to from classic Disney, who would be presenting this maybe on a more superficial level. Yeah, but it, it's fairly mid, and you know, to this day, I think it's not brilliantly remembered. I mean, again, though, we've had interactions on Twitter when we've been talking about like watching Fox and the Hound and stuff in the last couple of weeks from people just saying, yeah, I'm never going to watch that. So <laughs> it's it's just got such a reputation that I think it's past the point where it can be rehabilitated and reclaimed because people just don't want to watch it. Like, it's never going to become a cult classic because all people know about it is that it's really depressing and really sad and really dark. So might be lost to the sands of time but what did you think well i'm still percolating on my thoughts we'll get there in just a second but what what about the money side of things did this earn a lot in the cinemas how many children did this traumatize on the big screen do we have an exact figure for that <laughs> it did quite well unfortunately i haven't been able to find an exact figure there's conflicting reports on how well this did for some reason but it's generally somewhere in the 40 to 50 million dollar range so wow. similar to the rescuers Basically, the question is, did it do better than the rescuers or not? And uh, some reports say it did and some reports say it didn't. I would have to think, no, because how? <laughs> is that possible? Why would people be going to see this more than once in the cinema? I don't know, <laughs> but it, apparently some people must have. Yeah, and I'm surprised audiences weren't coming out of the first screenings immediately warning everyone they know, don't take your kids to see this film. The way that the Liverpool network of mums connected to that everyone was traumatized by this film surely there had to be something when it was first coming out but okay so it's similar-ish numbers to the rescuers is that's huge because the rescuers was the biggest animated film of all time yeah so it's weird we're in this dark age for disney but money-wise they're doing okay i mean we are about to see the downturn in in the next couple of episodes but so we've been calling it the dark age i always say for for a lot of reasons the movies are aesthetically dark and dark in terms of their story and tone but i think the main reason why people think of this as the dark age is not that the movies did very badly at the time but because they aren't very well remembered and as we've said i think there's good reasons why this movie isn't very well remembered well that leads me neatly into my thoughts which is i want to forget this film exists for the most part. No, I, I think this is a really interesting one because the story is so bleak in terms of Disney films that I can see why people don't go back to this movie and that it's just a sad story that you don't really want to put yourself through. But I do think the animation in this one is really good. I think it's one of the best looking films in a little while that we've seen, just in terms of the, the how clean the animation is. It's a really, you can feel that Disney style that we grew up with, especially in the 90s films. You can feel that visual identity really starting to solidify compared to like, we went through all the 60s scratchy Xerox stuff and the slightly jazzy influence of things like 101 Dalmatians. Whereas the style that we see in this film feels very much of a piece visually with what we saw in the 90s. So I enjoyed seeing that come together. I liked the way this film looked. It's a very effective film. Like, you do feel messed up by it because you do care about these characters because it does a good job of setting that up and then breaking your heart. I just don't want that. And I don't want to have to wade through all the Fox and the Hound stuff just to see my boy squeaks. So <laughs> I think I'm probably going like two and a half on this i'm going right down the middle because i think it's a good film that i don't want to watch again other than 
for the adventures of Squeaks and Boomer and Dinky, Tiggy, or whatever he was Tiggy. called. <laughs> you always forget Dinky. <laughs> I always forget Dinky. I feel like Boomer's maybe mentioned by name more in the film. At one point, Dinky literally says the line, okay, Boomer, so... Whoa. Well, five stars then. My ratings <laughs> immediately got up. What about you? What's your rating on this one? Yeah, I had this down as two and a half, and I think after this conversation, I'm slightly higher on it than I was, but it is it is that straight down the middle, quite accomplished in a lot of ways, reasonably ambitious in the kind of themes that it's trying to take on compared to the Disney films that have preceded it more recently. But... I think that the relationship between these two characters as children needed more time to develop. I I said that when we're talking about it. And, you know, the evidence is there that that might not be true because we still are traumatised by this film and we still do feel something when that relationship is broken apart. And yet, every time I rewatch it, I just think we need more of that. We We need to develop these characters a bit more because I think as characters, they are fairly... Thin, and as a relationship, it is fairly thin. Even though it has the desired effect, as a movie, it's a little bit unsatisfying during those sections. Okay then, now that we've got our thoughts and feelings out of the way, it's time to turn to lasting legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. And in the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there's a whole universe out there for each character. So, Sam, what is the lasting legacy of The Fox and the Hounds? Is there, like, a Squeaks restaurant in Disneyland? Is there Todd and Copper's best friends forever shooting range? No. No, there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's nothing. There's nothing at Disneyland. This is obviously partly because it's not very well remembered, partly because it's very depressing. But I think, you know, there's not anything really for Bambi in the parks either, despite that being a much more iconic film. I think it's just hard to do things around these non- anthropomorphic animal movies i mean obviously they are anthropomorphic but we're not talking like robin hood or something you know when it's purely just about animals running around in the forest it's hard to even put them in costumes right yeah because you don't want a guy running around on all fours (laughs) dressed as copper to say nothing of the fact that children probably wouldn't want to meet them but yeah even at the time when the rescuers came out there was loads of rescuers costumes even at the time i don't think there was much for fox and the hound so yeah nothing really in the parks but of course there is The Fox and the Hound 2, one of the last Disney films, I think it was the last Disney film to get a straight-to-video sequel. I think it was Little Mermaid 3 and Cinderella 3 came out after this, but this was the last movie to get a a first sequel. Really scraping the bottom of the barrel, (laughs) (laughs) truly, because how do you follow up The Fox and the Hound? And I ask you, Ben, what do you think The Fox and the Hound 2 is about? Okay, so unless it's a midquel with more Adventures of Todd and Copper... The other typical Disney way to go is it's the kids of Todd and the kids of Copper who presumably are now also mortal enemies, which is not something I need to see again. Yeah, you've figured it out. There's, there's only two kinds of, of <laughs> Disney sequel, isn't there? And this one is a midquel. Sorry, the- there are three types because the other one is batshit time travel adventure, <laughs> which I would love that for the Fox and the Hound. Yeah, it's not that. I would love, yeah, they go back in time and now they are friends or something. Forever, but they've broken the rules of reality and the multiverse is opened and all these other Tods and Coppers come through from other realities where they're enemies and some of them are friends and some of them are just one malevolent entity. You know, you could do all three in one. You could have Todd and Copper's children go back in time to when Todd and Copper were children <laughs> to stop them from breaking up. It's kind of like Battle of the Future. Yeah. But then they don't end up being born because of how things play out and when uh, you do that when you meddle with the past 
It's still quite a sad ending, isn't it? It's it's still, <laughs> you can't avoid it. It's inescapable. They are they are fated to doom and depression. Anyway, it's none of that. Uh, this is a movie about Todd and Copper as children who join a bluegrass band. <laughs> oh, more yeehaw bollocks. <laughs> It's so look, I said I wanted more adventures, I wanted more depth to that childhood Todd and Copper relationship, but not like this, Disney, not like this. <laughs> so this is a mid-quill in the same for the same reason that Bambi is a mid-quill because its characters are more iconic as children. It's easier to sell a movie with the childhood Todd and Copper on the cover. So in this Copper runs away to the county fair to join an old dog bluegrass band <laughs> sorry it's five dogs and one human on the banjo because dogs can't play banjo so this is already far sillier than the original movie right the might as well have gone the whole hog and just had dogs playing instruments please tell me they sing a song called scooby dooby dooby doo let your body turn to goo because that feels over peace with yeah, what this film sounds like bring it like. back no I want, I want to see dogs playing like washboards and like blowing into jugs and shit but like that's a skiffle band yeah that's not what we get the dogs are just the singers because that okay. makes sense you know what i mean like why don't you just do the dog is the whole band <laughs> if you're being unrealistic so the majority of this movie is actually a domestic drama about Dixie and Cash, a couple of new characters. So Dixie and Cash are the leaders of the band. They're the kind of John and Paul, like two big conflicting artistic <laughs> personalities. But they are also lovers. <laughs> and they are portrayed by country legend Reba McIntyre and Patrick Swayze. The Swayze! One oh of his last God. films. Fox wow. and the Hound 2. Um, so they are always clashing both romantically and artistically. There's a lot of like, that no good doggone mangy man of mine. And like, oh, darling, I swear I didn't mean nothing by it. Kind of, you know, you know what you're in for, right? <laughs> um, so anyway, the, the dogs are performing at the country fair. They're hoping to get scouted for the Grand Ole Opry. Wow. Um, which is what they call it every time. It's the High Grand Ole Opry. Yeah. And so in the original, we get tension between Todd and Copper because foxes and hounds are natural enemies. But in this one, we get tension because foxes aren't allowed in the dog band. <laughs> so sure. he's, he's jealous that Copper's in the dog band and he isn't in the dog band. And he conspires with Dixie to screw over both Cash and Copper so that they get kicked out of the dog band and Dixie is in charge of the dog band. I never thought I'd hear the words dog band so much in any context, let alone in, in this context. If we're judging the Disney sequels by how much they desecrate the original movie and just <laughs> totally go against its entire like ethos and tone, this is easily the worst so far. Just nothing about this fits tonally in the Fox and the Hound universe. We do not even get Big Mama or Boomer or Dinky, or Squeaks the Caterpillar. That's just Ooh. completely dispensed with in favour of various freaky dogs. <laughs> so you're saying this is more out of step with the original film than the time-travelling Cinderella movie? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Because wow. we can imagine the characters in Cinderella doing the things that they do in this movie. Mm -hmm. Whereas in, in this, it's like, Amos Slade has gone from this like threatening hunter figure to just, he's like bumbling around this county fair looking for his dog and it's 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 no it's bad it's it's really bad it's the worst one it's the worst one i've watched so far it's terrible but it's also terrible in a very weird way which kind of makes it worth watching i would say 
<laughs> yeah, I remember you texting me after you'd seen it, just saying I absolutely hated that. <laughs> it was really. I was watching it on a train, which is <laughs> kind of like kind of hoping nobody sees watching the Fox and the Hound two. <laughs> Who would have known that that was the Fox and the Hound two? They would have been like, "What is this dog band movie? <laughs> dog band the movie? Is that a new thing?" Oh man, yeah. Not good. So before we wrap up, I need to ask you about something that we actually haven't spoken about at all in this episode yet, because I need to get it out of my mind before we banish this film forever. How come Copper is the name of the dog when Copper would be a much better name for the fox who is red? Copper's like copper coloured though, right? Copper is like kind of orangey, isn't it? What is copper? No, but the fox (laughs) is the orangey one. It makes so much more sense in my mind. I've had to remember which one's which because I'm like copper... My brain thinks that should be the fox, but it's not the fox, it's the Well, hound. the fox is called Todd, because Todd is like an old Scots and Northern English name for foxes. Okay. So, so you get that quite a lot. Not because he's on his Todd. No, and in this in this movie, the say, uh, Widow Tweed says, Oh, you're such a little toddler, I'm going to call you Todd. But you, like, for example, Mr. Todd in Beatrix Potter is a fox. The movie The Plague Dogs, which is like the fox and the hound on acid, like the, the fox and the hound <laughs> times a billion uh, in terms of how overpoweringly depressing it is, that also has a fox character in it called Todd, who is one of the only Geordie characters in animation. So that's fun. But yeah, so Todd is, is a common name for fictional foxes. That's why he's called Todd. I didn't actually answer your question of why the dog's called Copper. But <laughs> I just, I have many, many, many notes about this film, but that has to be one of them. The fox should have been called Copper. And also they should have been friends forever, Sam. That should have been it. And that is it for this week's class. Join us again for our next seminar as we brew up some trouble in fantasy adventure, The Black Cauldron. Is it really going to get darker from here? The Black Cauldron is the one that I've heard lots of talk of it being just the weirdest, darkest thing we've ever done. By a lot of metrics, yes, but it's not as sad as this. Okay, okay, that's good. That's good. Fewer tissues, but more what the hell is going on. Uh, but in the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, and if you did not enjoy The Fox and the Hound, that is not our fault, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review, we'll offer you a free counselling session to be redeemed after watching this film. It's going to be either with me or Sam. We'll schedule it in. We can talk through all your feelings. But for now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Wait, wait, wait. Sam, we'll always be friends forever, won't we? Stop it. Won't we? Sam, we'll always be friends (laughs) forever. Yes, yes, Ben, yes. Please don't do this. Okay, forever. <laughs> I can't I can't handle this. We'll always be friends forever. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefets. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Disneyversity.